Hello everyone and welcome back to season six of the Great Women Artist podcast. In this series, I am so excited to be continuing my partnership with the brilliant Alighieri Jewelry, the wonderful team who have been supporting the Great Women Artist podcast for the last year and a half and with whom I have collaborated on with talks at the Alighieri Art History School. Keep posted for more dates to be announced soon. Female founder Rosh Patani started the brand seven years ago when she was going through a difficult time in her life and found inspiration and guidance in Dante Alighieri's Divine Comedy. With no formal training, she began hand-carving small wax sculptures by candlelight and casting them in recycled materials, depicting Dante's craggy landscapes and mythical creatures through fragmented talismans of imperfection. Committed to supporting local craftsmanship, Rosh continues to manufacture in London's Hatton Garden in the surrounding six streets of the studio, where her team of 25 young women work. Each piece tells a story and is an invitation to unlock yours. You can visit her work at www.alighieri.co.uk and just for our listeners, Alighieri is offering a 10% discount across all products with the code TGWA at checkout. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello everyone and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from the Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators, or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most of them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities. So you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I'm so excited to say that my guest on the Great Women Artists podcast is one of the most important and influential living poets, Eileen Miles. Born and raised in Massachusetts, Miles was in their mid-twenties when they moved to New York City in 1974 to be a poet, subsequently novelist, public talker and art journalist. They have since published 22 books, from poetry prose to fiction, including Not Me, Chelsea Girls, a personal favourite of mine, Cool For You, Skies, The Importance of Being Iceland, Travel Essays in Art, Inferno, A Poet's Novel, Afterglow, A Dog Memoir, Evolution, and many more. And in 2019, wrote and directed an 18-minute Super 8 film called The Trip. A recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship, an Andy Warhol Creative Capital Arts Writers Grant, four Lambda Book Awards, the Shelley Prize from the Poetry Society of America, a Poetry Award from the Foundation for Contemporary Arts, and a whole lot more. Miles has been aptly described by the Paris Review as an institution, the way one speaks of a terrific restaurant that's endured the waves of gentrification as a New York institution. But the reason why we are speaking with Miles today is because they recently contributed to the most extensive book on abstract expressionist maestro Joan Mitchell with their poem Eight Poems and Joan Mitchell's City Landscape, a text exploring Miles' own relationship to the late great artist whose tough, bold, gestural, almost indestructible 1955 painting City Landscape is described by Miles as bitch work, its tooth and claw. Eileen Miles, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Hey, Katie. I'm very well. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. 
Thank you so much for coming on. So I can't tell you what an honor it is to speak with you. Having devoured the recent publication, I found myself utterly struck by your poem and also deep fascination with Mitchell. I mean, Joan Mitchell's career spans four decades from the 50s to the 90s. And in that time, she became a master at transforming paint into gusts of light, energy and movement, lathering, smacking and smearing layers of color onto her surfaces. It's almost as though you can imagine her jumping up and fighting these gritty canvases. When confronted with them, they feel so epic so theatrical, aggressive, but at the same time so tranquil, like she's conjuring or tearing apart centuries worth of art making between her action-filled borders. So I'd just love to start off by asking you, how do you feel when you're confronted with a work by Joan Mitchell? You know, I feel many ways, and I think that's probably what I like about the experience of looking at them. I think every time I look at them, they're different. Like, I I just go for the blue ones, and so that makes me, like, very lean towards the early ones. And the brighter ones, I kind of have a harder time with. And yet when I'm in front of one, I'm like, oh, oh, you know, and then it becomes something else. So I just, they're very mutable as well as being strong. And I think that's part of the fascination. Yeah. I mean, is there anyone that stands out for you in particular? And if so, which one and why? I mean, it changes all the time, but I've, I have to say I, I was looking at them last night and today, and I, I just found myself looking a lot at a painting called Swamp from 1956, because it has a, it does a very interesting thing. A lot of the early ones seem to have like a, a bit of a superstructure in the middle and a lot of white around it. And this one does that, but then it all is kind of, of a piece too. Like the painting, it's sort of like held up, but it's not what surrounds it, that Joan Mitchell weather is really in full force. And I also, I'm very into the horizontal. The palette's cool. It's different. It's dull in a way. So you can really see the brush strokes and even just feel the glee when some little smash of orange comes in and you were like, it's almost like it was like a cigarette flick or something. You were like, but you can, you almost feel the presence of her in these moments, you know? I think you can. You can always feel her sort of thing, almost feel like a conversation with them as well. She gives herself to them in a way. You can feel her presence. I don't think she was even that tall, but she kind of conquers these giant canvases. Uh-huh. Well, I love all the ways in which I've read and heard about her that she was such a jock. You know, <laughs> since being a, a child, a girl, a young woman, it's just like she was always diving and doing physical things. And it's just like you feel that physicality in the work. And like you say, the tranquility of somebody who is very comfortable in their body and uses it vibrantly, they can stay still. And that stillness is in here too. Totally. I love the idea in in 2002, the New Yorker described her as having a wry set to her mouth would pretend the utterance of something startlingly smart and as often as not scathing. (laughs) This idea that it's kind of this dichotomy of the two, it's equally as kind of celestial, it is gritty and hellish Mm -hmm. almost. But I'd also like to ask you, when do you think you first came to Joan Mitchell's work? Pretty early. I mean, I probably saw it, you know, I grew up in Boston, so I did go to the Museum of Fine Arts there. But when I was a young poet, I guess when I was like 25 and 26, a whole crew of us took workshops at St. Mark's Poetry Project. And Alice Notley loved to get us to look at art and think about art and our poems and led us towards Frank O'Hara poems and then said, there's a show right now. And so I think I started looking at Joan Mitchell then. Right away, she was, for me, she was practice at looking at abstract art. Certainly yeah. looked at abstract art before, but the assignment to make a poem of it and even to just, and we were all, you know, huge Frank O'Haraites. And so then yeah. it was like very <laughs> exciting that, you know, a poem written for Joan Mitchell, or even that he edited 
his famous lunch poems in her studio. But it's sort of like that moment was such a moment in all of our little poet hearts and that it, it, yeah. and the Joan space held the space and their friendship held the space. So it was just like, okay, who is this female painter? Who is this woman? So she's been a question ever since then. And just also the progressive act of friendship that is in the work too. Yeah, but you never met her. You said in your poem that you could have because yeah. you might have been at the same parties. And it's and it's so funny. Or and and even just you know, good friends like you know, I take my dog for a walk in the afternoon, and we get a slice of pizza on Second Ave, a couple of doors away from where my friend, the painter Robert Harms, met Joan, and where Joe wow. Lesur lived. And so I was anticipating us talking today, but it was very. I mean, I even wrote a poem, you know, because I just thought, wow, we're just in the nave today. I'd love to hear it. It's a little lewd. I don't know if it works. It's called Diet Coke. Diet Coke says, recycle me. I took the dog on the subway today, and today I have an alarm on my phone called Joan Mitchell. And later on tonight, I said I'd be joning. This dog sees everything on Second Ave, not far historically from where Robert Harms met Joan Mitchell in the apartment of Joe Lesur right over there. I think of buildings collapsing. I'm having a slice nearby. At the party, everyone's laughing. I say, I'm boning Joan tonight. I'm boning up on Joan Mitchell for the famous woman artist podcast. Honey badly wants a bite. The light just changed as bright. The kind of Stefan Grappelli violin playing while bicycles pass. Matthew said, I would have sobbed the end was so good if I had authentic feelings. We laugh. I just spent an hour Zooming with my shrink, the parade of exes in Provincetown, the man in the orange cap walking away. I would cry if it wasn't so damn joyous. He's lowering the awning on the pizza place, but these feelings just won't go away. That's fantastic. I mean, it sounded okay. It sounded okay. Yes. But I love the boating joke. Oh, it's so bad. It's so bad. I was like, this is really offensive. But it seemed it could only go there. It was always in there, you know. But how amazing to have her spirit with you when you're just going out on your everyday walks. And I love this idea that you also went to visit all the apartments she lived in. You quoted your poem in the book, took a hot bike ride one day in late July around New York City to look at all of her apartments. I mean, what drew you to doing this and what was this experience like? Oh, so fun. Well, I just, as we're talking about the body of the person who made the paintings, and I'm in New York City, and I was writing about a painting, what it may or may not have been about New York, but I projected that onto the painting. In fact, because, and I think I mentioned that there was a painting called The Lake that I was really yeah. wanting to look at, and I couldn't get access to it. So I was always focused on this painting that I thought was New York. And I'm always interested in where somebody's body move what to walk the walk that they walked you know and to be yeah. in the space and so it was very interesting and, and again it's it's changed new york for me because i'll be either walking or riding and i was like oh yeah jones building you know it's just like <laughs> because that's just the way you know your friends in new york you know where they live or i guess when more of us were manhattanites it sort of changed a bit since the dawn of brooklyn yeah did did anything from that experience uncover anything for you I don't think so, but I just think it probably it just really put a soundtrack on my knowing of her because I think I mentioned in my piece, which is that the, the, the decline of cobblestones in New York City and the relationship of cobblestones to horse carriages and even the sizing of them. And I mean, I know what New York sounds like at night and, and it sounded different in the 50s and 60s, you know, because of high heels and cobblestones and that firmament. 
Yeah, it's such an interesting thing to think about. And I often forget it because her work can also feel very timeless and relate to the sounds of the modern day. I mean, that's what makes great art is its ability to transcend. But I want to go back to the beginning of Joan's life. She was born into a cultural and wealthy family in 1925 in Chicago. Her mother was not just a poet, which I find fascinating, but an editor of a poetry magazine. So was surrounded by the cultural elite. But also her father was a rather competitive man. He was a dermatologist. So in a way, she was caught between two worlds. I mean, what do you think they thought when she wanted to be a painter? I know that they didn't want her to be a painter, but surprise, surprise, you know, generally <laughs> nobody wants their kid to be a painter and they certainly don't want their female to be that either. So pushing against it, but it's almost to a one, any female artist that I've learned anything about, it's always the act of being an artist, the act of being a painter, the act of wanting that to be your life or your career was breaking away from the nuclear family, breaking away from the patriarchal values of it. And they sounded pretty strong in this one very dominant father, you know, so it's just like <laughs> the woman is out there from a pretty early age alone in a sense of without support. I love this idea as well that she grew up in this incredibly intellectual household as well and her mother was the editor of a poetry magazine. I mean, that's kind of fascinating that people like T.S. Eliot apparently would even like visit their home. It's crazy. Yeah, and you can see it in the work because there's something deeply languagey about these paintings. Yes. When you behold them, I feel like there's a kind of writing about them and I feel that with certain, you know, Cy Twombly, but it's just like the way it's commanding has a bit of the command of a page of writing. Totally. And I love this idea. Apparently, when she was age 10, she even had a poem published in a poetry magazine. But also this idea that she was this like extremely competitive child. You know, she did athletics, horseback riding, diving, figure skating. And I think that actually looking at the works, you can see that competitive knack and that kind of wanting for winning and that kind of muscularity in the painting mm -hmm, as well. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a funny thing, it's a funny class thing that the story of being poor is always this uphill climb narrative. I mean, everybody likes to think and talk about it. And the, the narrative of being rich is a different one, because I think that like not only as a female painter on the scene was she sneered at for being female, but she was probably sneered at for being rich. She could make choices that other people couldn't make and that I would think would be doubly isolating. I had to learn at a certain point in time to have empathy for the rich because their problems are different from mine, but they are real to make shape, to make form from that place, to to be dedicated. But also just that you know everybody's like, whoa, yeah, it must be nice. Going to Paris must be nice, you know? Yeah, exactly. But I mean, it must have been hard for her. Clearly, she was extremely ambitious. There's this line in the book where it mentions that even just 11 years old, her father told her she had to choose between painting and poetry. And she says, so I decided painting. And then when she wants to go to college, her first choice is interestingly Bennington, where Helen Frankenthaler was, although they didn't know each other at that time. But her father insisted she go and study English at Smith College, although she never completed the degree and in 1944 actually transferred to the School of Art Institute of Chicago. But the idea of literature in her work is fascinating. And that's what I'm fascinated to talk to you about as well, because what do you think actually studying English gave her? Probably less true then. But one of the things I've experienced from teaching poetry is that what you're really teaching people to do is think. And particularly in America, where I think that it's thinking is sneered at, valued when it kind of goes into the marketplace as something kind of adult and respectable. It's just like it isn't really an American practice. I think that you, I really had to learn to tell people to be stupid, be 
obvious. <laughs> you can fix it later. Be willing to wait. Be willing to not know. You know, there's so many kind of faints and things in the apprehension of a poem, for instance. And so I feel like it seems clear that while they were saying, don't be a painter, also in an environment where that altered time of literature, of poetry, you know, nonlinear thinking was a currency in the household. I mean, like, what the hell? I mean, all of us in the community of artists that I'm in now know that the the people who grew up in such environments just had a very different entree into this world. And then, I mean, in 1948, I mean, she then got a fellowship allowing her to travel to France for a year. I mean, this is quite an interesting time in the sense that it's post-World War II France. What do you think that must have been like for her? Well, it probably was, it was probably an escape. It's probably a huge escape because one of the things you get as an American going to Europe for the first time when I was young, it's like, nobody's watching me. You're not being apprehended in the same way. You know, she was a young female, so she was being apprehended in a certain way as that. But still, it's the kind of panopticon feeling of being watched. I think leaving America is potentially, a, I hate the word, but a bohemian gesture. You know, you yeah. just you just go into another culture. And it isn't just about Europe. It's about expatriates. It's about people making another kind of choice. So it's a studio. It's a cultural studio. You're living in a studio now. A way for living in a, in a kind of artistic community, if not finding mm. one there. Yeah, absolutely. And then, I mean, in 1950, she then headed to New York City. Mm -hmm. And I mean, this is a kind of new landscape entirely. I mean, settling first into a place on 11th Street, then 9th Street, yeah. where you mentioned she was living with a brown poodle named George. I mean, for you coming to, I guess, New York, maybe at the same kind of age as her, what do you think that must have been like? Well, I think one of the things that's most shocking for somebody coming into the city is their first sense that these people that you've heard of know each other. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just like, it, every, it's all from afar. It's all, there's this one and there's that one. And you even might see pictures of them someplace talking, but you don't really believe it. You know, I remember being in New York and, you know, somebody pointing out where Bob Dylan lived and somebody saying that Andy Warhol and Max's Kansas City, they all hang there. And the next step is to go in there and hang with them. And all those kind of like social baptism. You know, you know, and I remember in the poetry world, the ones who became part of the scene were the ones who were willing to hang out. And again, it's like being in front of the canvas. You had to waste time. You had to hear some bad poetry readings because <laughs> you knew somebody was going to be there and you were just going to hang out until you got near them. And you didn't know what you were going to say. And also drinking. Drinking was so huge when I first came to New York. And absolutely, it was so different for Joan. And she probably got to drink more and drink as an artist with men and find other female mm. intimates that she could drink with. And then a whole realm of conversation opens up. You know, art makes the inside come out, but so does booze. And so does community, because you hear how people talk about art. You didn't, you know, you might have had a teacher that talked that way, but you didn't hear a whole bunch of people, you know? Yeah. And I mean, at this time, she's kind of frequenting the Cedar Bar and participating in discussions at the Artist Club. And then it's part of the Ninth Street Show, which was a kind of pivotal exhibition abstract expressionism which kind of fused these two worlds together the first and second generation but I mean I love this idea of landscape in her work especially coming from France maybe Chicago as well that she started to look at the streets the rivers the skyscrapers the bridges became her landscape mm -hmm. and I mean how do you think that she incorporated landscape into her work I mean New York is so particular and, and I bet it was it was different then than it is now even but it's like to be it's an island 
It's yeah. got two rivers, you know, and I mean, like I read about New York earlier when it just like they would talk about the river light that was so unique. And it's like, I bet they had more in the 50s because nobody thinks about the fact that as you toss up these buildings, you're blocking the light. You're not just yeah. blocking the light from my friend's apartment on Ludlow Street. You're blocking everybody's light and you're blocking the Hudson from the East River. These rivers used to have more influence. I remember a friend pointing on 4th Street and saying, I love this street because you can see all the way across town. And that happened more when she was in New York. And it's just like having looked at the river, a lake that she looked at when she was a kid, that was one kind of setting. That was one kind of painting. And, and this was another, you know, and again... New York is linear in its funny way, you know, with the way it's broken up into all these streets and it's framed by water. It's what's glorious about the city. The sky echoes what's below. And then certain moments we seem miniaturized by this enormous thing that's happening around us that's so very old. Yeah. And so you also went to Chicago to see where she grew up as well. You know, it was a happy accident. I was there for some gig and I thought, oh my God, you know, like, and, and that's actually, that's what <laughs> the Joan tour continues. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's great. You know, I did some research and I thought, how could the Art Institute not have the painting called The Lake? And so then it was funny to be in Chicago looking at the lake that she looked at, you know, and I went through this whole thing of getting into her building, which was really crazy. Didn't you like fake interest in buying one of the apartments? No, no, I, he knew what I was. Okay. But I think I still was supposed to behave in a certain way. And I just got very curious about the building itself. And so I acted in another way. And that offended this guy deeply because I was to act like a person who was either buying an apartment or living in the building and not some jerk who wanted to see what every floor looked like because they were weirdly funereal. And it was just like, OK, this is Chicago wealth. This is a whole other type of language that I don't, I don't know. But still, it was the, the pleasure of putting my hip on windowsills and looking down at a view that more or less was hers and her childhood was pretty exciting. And just there it was, it was a painting, you know. Yeah. Coming back to City Landscape from 1955, which you write about. I mean, I love this idea that you said, you know, she always lived up high. I mean, can you tell us about City Landscape and why you were particularly drawn to write about it? Well, the shape of it. I mean, it's just like, what is the act of writing about a painting? You know, I'm not a painter. In fact, when I was a kid and I loved art and practice it, I couldn't paint. I could draw. But painting, I think it's meditative, fictionalized. It's sort of like when Alice told us to look at paintings and write poems. I was like, what? And then progressively in the years that I have written about art, I've just understood that you just describe. But there's something so subjective about the act of description. You're always imposing stuff. You know, it's like horny to put figures into paintings. But then on some level, you do see figures. And it's sort of like you have to say what you're thinking while you're on your way to what you think might be a more important thought. And so it winds up being this cascade of gestures, too. So that painting, I wound up finding it a very exciting way to think about New York. And, and mm. to think about the action of her being a painting in New York. And so it was an invitation because of its its shape and its way of just dangling in light. And I thought, shit, this is the island itself. Whether that's what she meant or I don't know. But it was fun to, to posit that idea and to be in it. And to feel kind of, because I didn't meet her, to meet her in the painting. To meet her from my city in the painting that she was painting about it, perhaps. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting. I hadn't actually seen... The painting until you wrote about it and actually it doesn't strike me as a kind of classic Joan Mitchell and everything's much kind of more condensed and I love this idea that they could be the sort of yellow taxis or traffic lights or but there's also something quite claustrophobic about the painting as well mm -hmm. it's not 
free. I mean, when you look at the kind of later 70s paintings, you do just feel this total expanse of your body right. almost. And in this one, it's so tight. And you say this beautiful thing where you say the city is creative, but Joan felt squeezed. Yeah. I mean, the sociality that is such a part of New York, she fled. She mm. lived a, a, a fairly isolated life for most of her adult life. And that's so interesting. I, I don't know if I mentioned the, but the painting wasn't the Art Institute. But yeah, so you could feel the voyage from Chicago to New York. Chicago too. It's just like a different, it's a very different space. You know, it's a lower city. The lakes are a different syntax from the rivers of New York. And again, because you go to New York to have a career, you're in that room. And she had the freedom to leave and, and did, you know, and I think you do feel something else in the paintings when she leaves New York. Yeah, but also this idea of being a woman in the city as well. I mean, there are only a handful of women who are even in the Ninth Street show or even have been remembered from that period of history at all. I mean, what do you think it must have been like at that time? Well, I think it's sort of like being a tourist. You know, it's like when you're when you're in another city, what you don't want to look at is other tourists. <laughs> it's very funny how you like it's great when you decide that you team up with somebody you meet on the road. But generally, you just don't want to see those assholes with their rolling bags, you know. <laughs> and so I, I have to say, it's just like the art world. It certainly was a male phenomenon then. And so the women, were they fellow travelers or were they rivals or were they ugly tourists to each other. I think they probably were all those different things at once because you had to figure out how to be female in the art world. And nobody probably was going to give you tips exactly. And you had to figure it out without knowing what she knows, perhaps. And I think she certainly resisted being described as a woman painter. I know she would hate this podcast. And I, you know, and I want to, you know, I thought, I really thought that very consciously that I want to give that to her right now. I mean, like I use the they pronoun. I love, you know, yeah. I've had my own problems. I sort of, I identified as a lesbian for many years, like the sound of the word dyke better and, and really realized when transness became kind of just abundantly part of the culture. I thought, oh, I think I'm trans. I'm trans. But what all that has given me is to unload something that I was always figuring out how to unload all the time. As a writer, I went to the country in the 90s because Helen Martin, Bryce Martin, had a house in the country they weren't using and they let me go there and finish Chelsea Girls. And it's like I was writing in nature for the first time. I was alone. And I, ha I had no gender. When I think mm. about Joan in France, despite the fact that she went there to be with Riopelle, she was in a big studio alone in nature all day long, and she had no gender. These paintings have no gender. They're just pure acts of being. And I think all of us, as I talk to you, you have no gender. That's true on some profound level. And I think as females or people identified as females were never allowed that freedom except quietly to ourselves when I suddenly I remember standing in nature and thinking oh my god I'm, I'm I'm nothing I'm no one but it's just a relative mutable thing and and the work is that and so I do understand sort of like it wasn't cool to feel like I'm not a female poet not a lesbian but you're always put on a shelf and and the fact that you have to find yourself there to see how you're distributed there's always a twinge so I just feel like she took that by going to France and, be, and staying there yeah. And, and how do you think her work did change at this time? I mean, from about 1955 onwards, she began frequenting there. So expansive, right? So big. And not, oh, you know, the paintings, I was like, oh, how long do I need to sit with them before I think, no, that is a good painting. But that's because I'm looking at her entire body of work. It's one thing to look at somebody's young paintings or poems and say, these are 
marvelous. But to look at something that goes on, what am I looking at right now? Something called No Birds from 1987, 88. Holy shit. You know, it's a triptych. And it's, it's this lard of yellow and this dashed off. It feels like landscape, but it also feels like calligraphy and some kind of frantic prayer. And just like, man, I mean, I think the thing I did in the book was very purposeful because I was thinking about those kind of Japanese landscape paintings that I've always, you know, there's a Gary Snyder book called Mountains and Rivers Without End. And it was basically a lifelong poem, a 40 year poem he wrote about a painting he had never seen. And then one day he saw it, but it's sort of like that long expanse of, of characters and movement. And then suddenly a little bit of text. And even in the absence of text, these feel like they they do that same thing, especially the, the wider ones. They just seem to contain literature and painting and nature and the ferocity of what she was feeling like that day. Yeah, and there was this idea that she's being set free. And after she begins to stay in Paris from 1955, they really do change. I mean, city landscape being made in 56 actually acts as this real pivotal point. And then after 1959, when she permanently settles in France, there is just this release. And I love how a painting can tell a story or reflect someone's internal life so vividly. But also her works exude so many ideas around poetry. I love this one especially, which she called George Went Swimming at Barnes Hole, But It Got Too Cold from 1957. Oh, wow. So, yeah, let's talk about this painting. It's so gorgeous. Especially as there's such poetic title in one work that she made a year earlier in 1956 called Hemlock was actually derived from a Wallace Stevens poem, Domination of Black. I mean, yeah. do you see her titles as poems, sort of this idea that George went swimming at Barnes Hole, but it got too cold? I mean, that for me, that title erupts open in a kind of story in itself. Yeah. Well, I think what it says is the person's comfortable with language because I think so many painters are like, oh, you know, and they just give it these little turdy titles. And this is just, it's expansive because, and it also has a, a letter quality to it, you know, writing letters or being on the phone. You're just like, well, what's going on there? Well, George went swimming at Barnsville, but it got too cold. You know, it's sort of like, it has a, a Frank O'Hara momentary thrust to it. And again, it's just so wonderful because there's so much white in these early paintings and well, white paint. And so it it feels like this very kind of enforced openness. You know, she's making making yeah. space. I love that idea that there are these like just pauses almost as well, like kind of silence with the white. And then you've got these staves that interrupt them as well. It's quite rhythmic mm -hmm. as well. I mean, could you talk a bit about her relationship with the poets? I mean, it was around this time that she was meeting people like Frank O'Hara in the early 50s. Could you talk a bit about her relationship to him and also her relationship to poetry at large? Well, I think as a poet who wrote about painting, you know that he was standing in her studio. And there's a way in which the people who look at your art are co-conspirators of a sort. Like when I write, I, I often am writing to people. If somebody knows my work, then I'm thinking of them when I'm writing. And so I would think that that was happening, that you could you could be writing something and knowing who would love it. And that would be part of your glee and it would energize you. And I'm sure that was in these pieces too. And that she knew because her mother was a poet or, and more importantly, a poetry editor. And so she was acquainted with poets. They were real people. And so she, when she came to New York, if you found out that this person was a poet, you would be home. These would be your people. Mm. You would know them. And so there's that. I mean, right now is a pretty great moment for poets in New York, but for, for a few gauzy decades, it wasn't. It was sort of like you were kind of a loser. You know, <laughs> but in the 50s and 60s, that was not the case. 
And so there was a cultural acceptance. But I think for her, it was family. It was home. It was like these people spoke your language. You knew what they knew. In even that you may not like T.S. Eliot anymore, and you might still love Wallace Stevens or whatever the progression was of reading and thinking about art. And then you get the 60s where she has actually moved to France at this point. And when I'm looking at something like Mud Time and just the kind of electricity in this. Oh, yeah. No, fantastic. It is such a good painting. And it's just mold. The colors are just smushing into each other. It shouldn't work, this painting, and yet it's it's so marvelous because it does. It's really ecstatic. And then that funny little vertical line on the right, it's almost a signature, mm. you know? It's like yeah. cool. But I love this idea that she was in France as well and almost deconstructing all these paintings by people like Monet or Van Gogh. I think what's also really interesting is in her youth, she won a prize in her art school. She makes this work called Tired Children, which is a lithograph. And it's this idea that she was looking at people like Katakolvitz and really kind of getting to this idea of agony and suffering oh, and, yeah. and, and sort of that feeling in painting. And I think you see uh-huh. it across her whole oeuvre in the sense that yeah. there is just, there's so much there. I mean, under mud time, it's like, like a bomb's going off underneath yeah. or something. No, it's great that you tie those two together because it's sort of, there's a moroseness, there's a vivid moroseness yeah. in both. That, that you think, wow, that's just going to stay with you. That's who you are. And it's just like, thank God for the body, because there's a darkness that, that inhabits all of us at certain times. And if not for movement, you would just be crushed by the thing. And it's like the war between those two forces is really predominant. I mean, I think it's part of what I like about it. It's sort of like it really is this ebullient darkness so often. Yeah, and I love this work, First Cyprus. That's also a fascinating painting in the sense that You've got this opaqueness that is taking over most of the right-hand side of the painting and then these kind of little staves that are sort of like notes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, that's like a car crash, that one. Because it's sort of like that shape is almost totally occluded. It almost is stopping the light, but the fact that it's shaping the canvas too at the same time. And weirdly on the right, it inhabits the canvas so strangely. It's really special. Yeah. I mean, how do you think that her work has also kind of influenced your poetry work? I don't know. I mean, only that when I look at it now and years ago, I feel altered. You feel this kind of gush of air. It's just work that's important to me. And it doesn't have words, but it has the heft of something. Because that's where I go when I have feeling. I go to words. And so it's just like the work makes me want to make work. I mean, yeah. it, has, it just has that because each one is like a unique invention. Any artist who's just gone on for decades, they're monuments. And this is a yeah. female monument to regender her. Just think it's, you, <laughs> she did that. She did it and she did it and she did it and she did it, you know. Um, and yeah. that, that in itself, you know, and so well, you know, it's just, that's, that's mm. just a unique sentence. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to talk about the later career from the 70s onwards, because it's around this time that she actually moves out of Paris and into a smaller town northwest of Paris, where she would also have young artists and writers come and stay with her in the summer, sometimes I think for one night, but other times for the entire, for months. The works that she is making at this point are sometimes kind of eight metres long. But alongside this, she's also working on these pastels, sometimes even working pastels over poems, such as by James Schuyler, which makes them come alive so much. It's incredible to see her responding to words. I mean, how does this period period in her life speak to you let's get into the 70s where that's late 70s to think that you were coming to new york at this time as well uh-huh. <laughs> you know the, the the pastels are so cool 
Mm. too. I mean, that's like something different entirely because there's more control, but there's more out of control at once. I think she went there because she was stuck to pastels. And so then there's like something pithy in them and desperate, but really Mm. wonderful. It's just the way that she kind of creates the light in them. It's like this backlight that's shining through the canvas or the page or something. And then Parasol just is so fucking Matisse, I think. And so there's just a sense of history that she's painting with and dealing with by being in France. And I, I think was that when she lived over Monet's studio at some point, yeah. you know, and it's just like, yeah. what are you going to do? It's just like, if I lived over Beckett's apartment, <laughs> you know, he would become a joke in my work. He would, he would become a space <laughs> in it, you know? Yeah. I think she was actually friends with Samuel Beckett as well. Yes. Yes, I know. <laughs> Can we talk a bit about the lake, which is definitely one of her darkest paintings as well. I mean, how does this one sit with you? I think it's difficult because at first I see it and I see a postcard. It seems light and easy. And then, and then the kind of the way the darkness erupts from the bottom, it starts to have this very stormy quality. It's infused by weather and it's really troubling. I think it's a troubled painting, but it's pretty it's beautiful i mean it's like the thing I, on the surface it's like an attractive painting and that's pretty funny but i also love the idea that you know you see these bits of reds and hints of purples that kind of come out and i mentioned in the introduction you know for me it's like she transfers painting into like gusts of wind or movement or energy or something and i've never seen it in painting so kind of vividly mm-hmm. it's kind of difficult to describe in the sense that it's like this wind and you can almost like hear it it's so atmospheric right right it's like the person it makes me think of is james schuyler um yeah. a, because in his diaries he narrates weather and how a draft would go through a house it just and it's it's very painterly and looking at this makes me think of the pastels that she did with him or did with his yeah. poems because there's that kind of fleeting feeling she used poems of his in pastels. I mean, I think she knew, as we we all knew, that in a certain way, Jimmy was the the greatest poet. You know, the guy, mm. the Ashbery, you know, it's just like Ashbery, there's that line where um, Franco Harris says, I think it's the poem to Joan Mitchell. And he said, John, who's always marrying everything, you know, like, it's just like, <laughs> he's the grand one. But Schuyler is just like, he's the absolutely alive. He's like the weather vane. And, you know, he's pretty crazy in and out in his life. And I think Joan knew him as a younger guy. And then I think, you know, famously sort of fed on was like, okay, tell me the latest with Jimmy. What did he do now? Because he burnt his way out of several households because it was like they couldn't take the explosiveness of his mentality. So it's sort of like, I think he was that way that somebody, you keep somebody around because they do what you can't do. And I think Jimmy was that for Joan. He enacted things that she didn't need to enact, but shared. Yeah, totally. I mean, what do you think her paintings say about her personality and and who she was and how she lived her life? Scary, scary, (laughs) you know, because I think there's an utter commitment, like nothing can stop this person. I mean, you can feel that about the work, that it it just goes and goes and goes and goes. And that's exhausting. I mean, it was just like, there's that part of Joan that everybody loves to talk about, but I think it was true. You know, if you went to visit her in France, you were going to pay, you know, <laughs> because she was very generous, but often thought about if I had met her, you know, like you just imagine what awful, horrible parts of your personality she would have identified and then like rode you on it. I think you would stay up all night drinking and then she would tell you what was wrong with you or mock you. <laughs> this person is a terror. 
What do you think she's taught you? Probably who gives a damn what anybody else thinks. The pleasure and the ecstasy of just making the work and just doing it and staying in it for years and not, I think, not worrying about fashion. I mean, it's just worked like she really hit her thing and just did it for a lifetime. And it certainly, by the 80s, she was not fashionable. And I think right now, I mean, everybody loves Joan Mitchell right now because it's sort of like, obviously, acceptance of one's work, that just comes and goes. You know, there's an acknowledgement mm-hmm. in here of, of changing tides in the art world, but the work is the same. Yeah, that's so interesting. And I mean, just to go back to poetry, I mean, what do you think the relationship of her work to poetry is? I think they're just, they're simply in conversation. There's probably a mutual object that they're dwelling on if if you know if we buy the thing about nature being a hyper object and you're you're in it and you're outside of it at once and you're both I think narrate things that are just endlessly mutable until they stop mm. moving. With her too it's like that thing that people say that people are alive as long as somebody who knew them is still alive. And I just think that Joan is such an interesting legend now because the work is so big and there's still enough people around who knew her or talking about her. This is sort of a perfect moment for her right now. And so I feel yeah. like I know her. You know, I feel like when yeah. I have my slice, we're having the encounter at last, you know. Yeah, but that's the beautiful thing about art in any form. It's the fact that the words are always forever printed on the page. The page is down on the canvas. It will forever live on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And just so interesting that she speaks to this generation kind of more than ever. And how do you think, looking back at her work now... I mean, compared to like coming to it in 1974, I mean, do you feel like your attitude has changed towards it or do you feel like you've learned something else or has it grown with you, do you find? Oh, I think the latter. I think it's really grown with me. My understanding of just how good she is keeps developing and keeps, I'm just looking at Merci, you know, this, they're, they're so tossed off. It's like, again, like very kind of abbreviated almost zen-like paintings, 1992. It really is just like looking through a a gorgeous collected poems and just gasping. It's like my friend, the poet Tim Dugos, who was my best friend who died at the height of AIDS, was a very good poet and a really good friend of mine. And I knew his work. But when his collected poems came out a few years ago, the shock was that I never knew Tim was that good. It was just breathtaking. He had done so much. And I think the beauty of this moment in Joan's career is that it's like there it is the accumulation is just breathtaking and weird and it's almost filmic and the way that it takes you as you apprehend it because it's moving and you're moving and it's just it's very modern work in the in the broadest sense bigger than postmodern I think it's kind of amazing the work that you just chose messy it's 1992, and I love this idea that it means thank you, and it's like in the last year of her life. Uh, it's quite kind of amazing. Wow, wow, yeah, yeah, truly, yeah. And it feels like it's a big note. It's a note, but it's yeah, but it's a big one. Yeah. So it's really interesting in terms of scale and message, because everything she does is in this painting, but in a sort of abbreviated fashion. Yeah, there's more white than ever. There's more bare canvas than ever. I mean, how do you find looking back at her oeuvre from beginning to end? When I look at these early paintings that I love so much, I would never use the word heavy-handed to describe what she does. But there's an energy which I think of as youth, which is that she's just, she's making a point. She's making a mark over and over and she's elaborating and she's, un, she's you know, like it's sort of like a thick 
wild, heavy mark. And because that's what she's doing. And what's interesting is that the Joan-ness that we know is there too, because there's lots of space next to it. And it's interesting where she puts that mark and how she puts that mark. So the future is in there, but it's like there's this heaviness and this lavishness that is seems to me to be about everything of youth and desire. And when you look at the old paintings, like the Merci that we talked about, she's got one leg out the door and she knows it. And she's known it for a while and it's been in the works. So what we're really looking at when we look at this whole body of work of this sensational painter is we're looking at the process of her mortality. We're looking at her life and it's so incredible. And so by the end, what's so interesting is that she knows her mark so well that she doesn't have to try so hard. She doesn't have to convince you. She knows she's Joan. She's already said it. She wants to say it one more time. But it's just, it's very light and it's very sure. And it's like, that's the, the glory of watching an artist make work all their life is that you can see this end where there's lots of space and she knows where she's going and she's got one or two things left to say. And they're, and they're, so, they're so backed up by everything she said before that she doesn't have to say it again. Well, Eileen, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. And we do always ask our guests, if you could have met Joan, would there be anything you would have said to her or asked her? Oh, my God. Yeah, that was such a great question. My God, I would have been so intimidated by her. That, that, <laughs> I mean, so I think you have to kind of wipe the fear away and say, so what is painting, Joan? You know, yeah. and I know that the answer would change all the time, but I just think it would be whatever she said at that moment would be fun to hear because there's no one answer to a question like that to a person like her. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Yes, this has been great. Great to see you again next time and for real. Thank you all so much for listening to the 65th episode of the Great Women Artists podcast with the brilliant Eileen Miles on Joan Mitchell. It was so fascinating to hear Miles' take on Mitchell, especially from a poetry perspective, and urge you all to have a look at their poem, Eight Poems and Joan Mitchell City Landscapes, which is published in Yale University Press's extensive book on Joan Mitchell. As always, I have included all the links in the show notes. This episode was sound edited by the brilliant Nardes Mnelic, with research assisted by Viva Ruji and if you have been enjoying these episodes so far I would be so grateful if you were to leave a review as it helps others find us and of course thank you so much for listening to the Great Women Artists podcast with me Katie Hessel 